Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. First, I've got to say a massive thank you to everybody that sent me a message over my Racecourse 100 challenge. I genuinely really, really appreciate it. You can now relive the whole thing if you so wish on our Instagram, which is at Why in the World Pod. We've put the whole thing in a story highlight there. So if you want to go and relive Racecourse 100 and see me running round and round and round and round in circles, for 100 miles, then it is there for you to watch whenever you want. Stick that account to follow as well, and I will make sure I follow you back. Today, the first of a four-part mini-series as I go in-depth with ultra-endurance athlete Luke Taberski. Luke was just a normal kid from a sleepy Australian town with a dream to play professional football. At 28, he was forced to retire through injury and found ultra-endurance, with the MDS being his first ever race. This is an incredibly insightful conversation. Luke is incredibly knowledgeable and I really, really enjoyed sitting down and chatting to him. I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. This is the first of a four-parter as we go in-depth with Luke Taberski. He is on Why in the World. Right, so we are sat here with the author of Chasing Extreme, and uh, I think pretty aptly titled book that uh, for some of the stuff that you've done. Look how you man. I'm very well. Thanks for uh, coming around to to House of Taberski, <laughs> mate. Thank you for the coffee as well to start with. You've been out on a little 26 mile trot this morning, casual. Yeah, yeah just a little little jog. You know, training for life as you do. <laughs> Your story, man, is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. You've bounced around country to country, continent to continent, doing some crazy things. I just want people to sort of understand your upbringing and where you came from to start with. So give us a little bit of background about that. So I grew up in Australia in a small country town and it was sport mad, Mm. absolute sport crazy. And I wasn't a very good athlete at all. My sister, she was the star of the the family. I've just had one sibling. And I always wanted to be a professional footballer or soccer player as we, as we called it and that was it like that was my goal from a four four year old kid like I can remember being four and saying I want to be a professional soccer player mm. so I was very driven by that I wasn't very good I didn't make like the top teams when I was a kid but the one thing that my parents installed into me and always encouraged me with was if you want to achieve something you're going to have to work hard for it and when I kept getting knocked back by um, clubs and representative teams, like we're talking my local town, it's like it's not like a big national team, it's like a local representative team getting told, um, no, you're not good enough this year. And there's a really cool story that I love telling because it's so brutal. You could never get away with it today. So imagine you've got 25 kids who are like 10, okay, and they've played this game and the coach is going to pick the squad of... 18 players out of 25 okay and all the 25 kids are sitting down in front of the coach with their parents behind them with a notepad and the coach goes if I call your name come and sit behind me you've made the team so he's calling out all these names gets to the 18th name and says to everyone else there's literally like seven or six of us sitting there on the grounds Sorry, guys. Better oh, luck next so year. Savage. <laughs> and then turns around and talks to the team that he's just picked up, like 10, 11, 12-year-olds, and starts talking about the, the team, what's going to do. And the rest of these kids are sort of picked up by their parents and carried off. <laughs> That's how brutal it was when I grew up. That's how it was. But what I took away from this was I would go up to the coach and say, Coach, 
he's like, oh, Luke, I didn't read your name out. Like, come back next year. Hopefully, um, you know, you'll do better. Mm. I said, no, I know you didn't pick me. But what I want to know is what do I need to do better to get picked on the team next year? And he will just give me something to, to go and work on. And for the next 12 months, that is the thing that I would work on in the backyard. Like, we're talking 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age. I would get tennis ball and I'd kick against the fence and I would dribble a tennis ball in the back garden and things like this. The reason why I tell that story, it is it is brutally honest yeah. and, and it is a bit funny because you could never get away <laughs> with that today. But... It's the mentality that I that my parents really gave to me was that if you want to achieve something and you want it bad enough, then you're going to have to do the work and you're going to have to make sacrifices and you're going to have to do everything in your power to be the best that you can be and then it's up to other people. Where did you get that work ethic? You mentioned your parents. Was it something they instilled from you in an early age? Yeah, 100%. So my... My parents were working class family. My mum's worked in sort of clerical services, secretary, like that type of stuff. And my dad's a builder. So they were always get up early. My mum would go for a walk. My dad would be left the house at six. And then they would go to their jobs and they would work late. My grandmother would come pick us up from school when we were younger. So they were always like nonstop doing everything they could to provide for us. Yeah. And then at the same time, shuttling my sister and I off to training for sport things like that so it was always finding a way it was never oh no this is too difficult we can't do this it's like okay so this is how we're going to do it let's just try this way if it doesn't work then we'll try something else so I saw my parents just work their backside off for putting food on the table to providing roof over our ourselves and also to help us live the life that really as children my sister and I as we wanted it so it was in front of me seven days a week and then it was reinforced if I said to my parents like when I was younger I want to be a professional footballer they said okay cool we're not going to squash that but you know you're going to have to work yeah. really hard so then it was a case of okay fine I'm going to do it and they would support me with working hard after school taking me to training sessions and things like that you kind of had to give back to them though as well because if they're supporting you with that taking you to sessions and supporting you you had to instill that work ethic in yourself to actually show them something that you were like giving back to them almost yeah for there was a time when I so I moved out of home when I was 16 what I grew into my body and all the hard work I did as a 10 11 12 13 year old I, I felt like it it all came together when I was like 14, 15. And I never used to make the representative team. So in, say, in the UK, like the, the local town. I never used to make the local town team. And then all of a sudden, I grew. I grew into my body around 14, 15. And all the training I used to do, the extra training before school, like I used to go to the gym by myself and like run on a treadmill at 14 and then I would go to high school, you know, fall asleep in the afternoon. I was like, <laughs> you know, four or five days a week, I'm working hard. And then all of a sudden, say, in terms of the equivalent in the UK, I never got picked for my local team. And then the head county scout is like, we want you in the team. You don't even have to try out. We just want you because I don't know where you've come from, but you're amazing. And then the national team was starting to look at me as well. So I went from this kid who was getting told a couple of years ago, no, Luke, sorry, you're not good enough for the local team. Now there's national selectors. So for me, that was like... I can see what my parents were talking about. 
you put the hard work in and you be aggressive in your work daily, but you be patient in the long term, that's going to give you a good chance Mm. of succeeding. So in terms of giving back, it was stay focused for that long-term goal, and that is giving back. And I got one kick up the backside from my parents. Um, I was 16. I moved away from home to play for a professional team while I was still at high school. And then I got injured, so I moved back to my hometown for a little bit to do rehab. And I was coming back, and there was no clubs that wanted to try like go on trial with me for me and 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 sign me anything like that and I was just a bit like I was a bit down and and my mum just literally called my bullshit really mm. and said if you want this like you're gonna have to do everything you can she said call every club in the league that you want to play in call every club so don't complain that no one wants to sign you because you've only called the top four teams because you want to play for the best clubs Call everyone every day, mm. harass them. So it was even then when I was like 17, 18, my parents were still putting into me, into my mind and my mindset, which is now my mental framework, is like, okay, can you do more? Can you take that next step? They obviously believed in you as well. So that's probably why they were doing it too. But they knew that you wouldn't have forgave yourself if you hadn't have done that as well which I think is a very parental thing to do, isn't it? Because parents know best. No matter how old you are, parents know best, don't they? How did your footy career play out then? I was, yeah. Big question. Big question. (laughs) Right now, sitting here at just, um, as you can see, is my birthday. There's a birthday banner up there on the wall uh, last week. 36 years of age. Happy birthday. Thank you. I am very happy now because I've done the work personally to realize that I had an extremely successful football career and I look at it as being massively successful. Mm. I played in numerous countries around the world. It helped me finish off my exercise science degree. I met so many amazing people from all different walks of life and cultures and I did all of that by the time I was 26. I didn't make any money from football but I went for about seven years where I didn't have to have a real job. Mm. Okay, so my my definition of success to maybe what the general public will look at an ex-professional footballer might be different because they might go, well, how big is your bank account? How many houses do you own? Or, or what car do you drive? Okay, I didn't make any money from football because I was bouncing around in the lower leagues. I was just trying to pursue this dream that I had as a four-year-old kid, and I did it. I played professionally for several years. And to be a professional footballer, for me, it was like, I don't have to have another job. All I have to do is get up in the morning and play the game that I love, and I love doing it. So it's taken me several years to realize that. But for a period of time, I really used to beat myself up. And this is one of the reasons why, great little segue actually, one of the reasons why I went into ultra endurance sports is because when I I retired at, 28 because I battled with injuries for about three years. From about 25, 28, I had three surgeries in 11 months. I had multiple other tears and steroid injections and all the rest of it, back injections, all this crazy stuff. Um, I was in a pretty dark place with life as well, with, with depression, didn't speak about it with anyone, really confused about what the hell was going on. And I really just hated life. But I was still pushing and pushing and pushing to try and get a contract here in the UK because I was living here now after playing in Belgium, but playing in America and playing in Australia. So 
I had a chip on my shoulder for several years that I didn't fulfill my potential as a footballer slash athlete. And the day I retired from football, I signed up to my first ever running race, which happened to be just a little ultra marathon. <laughs> just, yeah, just the most famous foot race on planet Earth, probably. Yeah, and largely because, one, I had a loss of identity because I wasn't a footballer anymore, and two, I had this massive chip on my shoulder, as I said, that I felt like I didn't fulfill my potential as an athlete. But now, looking at it from a 10,000-foot view several years later which is why I led with my career was a huge success, was that I do feel that because of everything I achieved. It's hard to process it at the time with anything, with any decision you make, you're always going to doubt the decision and it's hard to process it until you're away from it and removed from that decision. Essentially, that's exactly what you're saying about your football career because when I was reading and listening and watching your story, my first thought was, I would say it's a very successful career, not only because you got to play the game that you loved, but because you found what you're doing now as well. Because without football, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be this endurance athlete that you are now. You wouldn't be this author. You wouldn't be this person that does all these incredible things and inspires lots of people. So that, for me, would show your success as well, I think, personally. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I learned a lot about myself during from that period of time when I played football from yeah from when I left my family home at 16 to when I retired at 28 you know that's a very interesting time in life from 16 to 28 for well not just men but for anyone Mm. you know you're learning so much and I'm bouncing around the world away from still a kid aren't you yeah I'm away from my family I'm fending for myself you know like and then at 21 years of age I'm on the other side of the world to my family to anyone like I'm literally by myself and I wasn't at big clubs so I was treated like a king or anything like that like I'm knocking down doors myself to just try and get a glimpse so it was hard it was brutal Mm. but it was that whole work ethic that my parents uh, installed in me if you want it you'll find a way so yeah to everything that I sort of learnt in that period now that I've, I've been a bit older and over the last five years Specifically, and I look back, I've learned so much about myself from that period. And I've realized there's things that I used to do and ways that I used to think as a footballer in my 20s that I do now as an endurance athlete in my 30s. And it was like, I've been doing this my whole life. No wonder I'm really good at it. Mm. And no wonder my mental framework is so strong and why people go, I have no idea how you push yourself that hard mentally. And it's because... I've been training my mind and I've been building this sort of mental toolbox ever since I was a 16-year-old kid and I can still see it now. My parents said, see you later, and they drove off and they lived four hours away. And I'm with, living with this random family who I've met the dad once and the son a couple of times and met the two brothers and the mum was like, hi, I'm living with you guys now. <laughs> it's that mental fortitude, isn't it? That idea of mental fortitude that whatever you do builds that fortitude in your brain so you can do other things as well. And it sounds like you said there, since I was 16, but it actually probably sounds like that began, that mental fortitude began to get built when you were getting picked in school or not getting picked in school, probably. Yeah, exactly. When I was 16, I was just by myself. Mm. So before I could go home and talk to my parents about it, whereas at 16 you go home and 
you're sitting in the bedroom with this random family you don't really know. They're very lovely, and they're now you know, my second family. I still speak to them today, 20 years on. But you're still in the room by yourself, this foreign room that you've never been in before, really, and you're very lonely. Yeah. And that mental fortitude, yeah, it's like you can't have, you can't go and sit next to your mum and have a little cuddle with your mum and say, mum, like, I didn't get picked and this and that, and she'll say a few words to sort of pick you up and help you move forward. you got to do that yourself. Just to self-motivate yourself. Yeah. It is still a very strange transition, though, from football to ultra-endurance athlete. You're a multi-sprint athlete playing football, and now you're just someone that just doesn't stop <laughs> why did you decide to do the MDS my first ever running race like it's mad that it's your first ever running race as a footballer you don't like running pre-season you might do like a couple of 5k's maybe a 10k <laughs> if you've got a brutal strength and conditioning coach or a fitness coach and I love the fitness side of it I was always one of the fittest people in every team I played for <laughs> don't get me wrong like I did like, I think I probably ran 10Ks once in my life. I hated it. Hated it. Pre-season, it's like, okay, guys, we're going to do a nice slow run for 5Ks. And everyone's like, fire out, are you kidding me? Can't we go and do like 10 100s or yeah, something just do like some that? Yeah, some sprints. Yeah, and you hated that. Mm, but but you, you it's done it. quick yeah. as well. So the transition was not normal. As I said, it was stemmed from a loss of identity immediately and... I had this chip on my shoulders, like, I didn't think I felt, I, I filled my potential as an athlete, footballer, but more as an athlete, because that's how I identified myself, first and foremost, because I lived a very monk lifestyle, you know, I was never a big drinker at school, because I was training hard, you know, 16, 17, you start experimenting with alcohol and things like that, I didn't, because Luke's the footballer, Luke's the soccer player, he's the athlete, you know, that was it, even in my 20s, I'd go and pick up my friends drunk from the bar and whatever, but it's like, I'm picking you up, I'm driving you home, and then I'm going home. So that was always me, and I was always early to bed, um, and I was always doing my stretching and my recovery and pool sessions and and getting massaged just to, um, not because there was any injury, but just to maintenance, and everyone mm. was a bit like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, nothing. I just want to be as healthy as I can be. So that was me since like 14. But it was a large part of it was escaping from life, and when I it was literally this, it was literally within two hours, I'd retired from football to I had a place in the marathon de Sabs. and like that sounds ridiculous. People say, "Oh yeah, I retired and then I signed up to it." I was training down at the local park, doing some sprint training. I was about three quarters of the way through, and I tore a calf muscle, and I kept tearing left, right, left, right calf muscles. And then I tore this one, and it was literally like the clouds parted, the suns came, the sun came out, and it was just like I'm done, hmm. weight off the shoulders, I'm content. Because the reason why I kept pushing for these three years when I was injured was I didn't want to live with any regrets. And everyone, my parents, my sister, my girlfriend at the time, so many people were like, "I think your body's telling you something. It's breaking down. It doesn't want to do this anymore." But for 12 months, I was like, "No, I'm not listening to you. I've got to live with this." And then I tore this calf muscle, as I said, like it was this Hollywood moment where it was beautiful and the, the weight was lifted off my shoulders. And I said, I'm done. And I smiled. And I hobbled home and I'm in my bedroom and I text my physio, text my girlfriend and just said, I'm done. Torn calf muscle. Talk to you later. Threw my phone to the other side of the room. This was like nine years ago. I iced my calf and then I grabbed my laptop 
And I'm just like, nah, okay. And I was not looking at anything specifically. And I'm just like, I'm just going to pass the time. I've retired. Yeah, okay, whatever, whatever. And then for some crazy reason, I remember the conversation I had with a friend of mine in Australia who was just starting to do marathons. And he told me, and I, I thought, kid you not, at this time, like eight or nine years ago, I thought people that did half marathons were crazy. I thought people that did marathons were on a death wish. I didn't even know there was such a thing called an ultra marathon until I had this conversation with my mate in Australia about six months earlier and he told me about this race where you run the equivalent of six marathons in seven days through the middle of the Sahara Desert carrying a backpack with everything that you need, all your food for the entire week from the start to the finish. And I thought he was joking. He's like, no, seriously, it's a real race. And I'm just like, these guys are lunatics. For some crazy reason, I'm icing my calf. I'm looking at Google and playing around. And I thought, I'm going to do that. The fact that you do it when you're injured is <laughs> the main thing that I'm like, what the? So I Googled it and I found it. And it was in six months. And I thought, I need a month for this calf to heal. Five months to train. <laughs> it made sense to me at the time. So I literally called them up and I knew nothing about ultramarathons. I knew nothing about this race. Which, by the way, is, is so hard to get into. Oh, when I, when I went and did it, I'm talking to people who are on waiting lists for two and three years. And they're like, oh, when did you sign up? And I'm like, I signed up six months ago. <laughs> how did you get a place? So this is how I got a place. I called them up, icing my calf. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I want to do uh, next year's race. And they're like, uh, yeah, it's pretty booked up, but we can put you on a waiting list. And I was like, no, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'll pay for it now. It's fine. I'm thinking like four or five hundred quid, right? It's also one of the world's most expensive races. And she's like, well, actually, we've had a couple of people drop out. If you pay your deposit now on this phone call, we'll give you a place. And I was like, okay, cool. Reaching for my wallet to get my card details. She's like, yeah, the deposit's like 2,000 pounds. And I'm like, huh? deposit? And literally I went, well, how much is it in total? And I think back then it was like just under four grand. Mm -hmm. And in a snap decision, I went from having my life savings of about 5,000 pounds. That was my savings from finishing my football career. As I said, I didn't make any money from football. This race is about 4000 and I thought, I'm going to put it all on this. So I said, fine, yeah, no worries. So I said, I can pay the deposit now, but I need to change some money around in bank accounts to pay the rest of it. She said, yeah, you've got like two months to pay the rest of it. And I was like, fine, no worries, gave her a card detail. She said, congratulations, you're doing the marathon to Sarbs. I hung up, put my laptop down and went, holy crap, what's going on now? <laughs> you got, you got five months then after your calf gets better to actually train for this race, to train for your first ever running race, which is mind-blowing. Was there a moment that you called up someone then and went, oh, yeah, I've just done this thing. Um, like, who did you tell? So someone who I've confided in a lot and who knows my body very well is my physiotherapist, Mo, uh, Martin O'Connell. So I went to see him the next day or the day after, <laughs> go in and he's like, oh, sorry to hear about football. And he worked at a professional football club at the time in the premiership. So he understood football's mentality. I'd been seeing him for about three years or so. He knew me quite well. 
so he was treating me with this and that. He's like, oh, so what's next? <laughs> I said, I've got this idea. And he, he, he could tell I had this look in my face. And he said, oh, you're not going to do anything like a something stupid like an Iron Man, are you? And I'm like, no. No, I'm not. Have you heard of the Marathon de Sabs? And he's just like, oh, yes, you idiot. So I said, what do you, what do you think, Mo? And he said, what do you mean? He said, do you reckon I can do it next year? He said, well, when is it? And I said, oh, it's in like six months. He said, well, this will be good in three or four weeks. And I said, do you reckon I could do it? And he said, well, we'll work together. So I told him, he knows my body. He doesn't really have any running coaching experience, but loading patterns and how he sees my body, he can help to see this is too much mm. or we can push a little bit more. Plus, we'll wing it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, maybe let, let's train for a month. And then, or something like this, train for a month and see how your body goes with more intent, like more increased loading. I said, okay, cool. We did the treatment and I was literally leaving his house and I said, so what do you reckon? Do you reckon I could do it next year? He says, oh, yeah, probably. I said, oh, good, because I've already signed up. <laughs> and he just lost it. He said, you idiot. So it was then and there that he he and I just said, right, let's work together. He created, uh, we created our running training together and I used to see him a couple of times a week and we just sort of based it on how my body felt and we were sort of going in a little bit blind. He'd spoken to a few people that had dealt with running before and we increased the mileage a little bit quick. Uh, we nearly got away with it towards the end, but I picked up a few niggles just before I went out to the desert. But uh, I realized very quickly that running slow for a long period of time I was pretty decent at it before we go to the race itself because that in itself is an amazing story when you picked up the phone to your parents who like you've said in this already have always been supportive of you what was their reaction to hey mum dad um, so I'm going to do this mental race so funny story I love, a, I love a good story is by complete chance my parents were coming over to the UK because they I was living in the UK at the time. They were still in Australia. And they were coming over just as a visit to see my sister, who also lives over here. And my mum, this is the most random thing, but my mum went to Egypt by herself because she's always loved Egypt. And my dad's like, oh, I don't really care for Egypt. I'm going to see Luke for a couple of days. So my dad was coming over by himself as my mum went to Egypt. So I picked my dad up from the airport and come back. And he says, oh, how's things, whatever. And I said, Dad i got something to tell you. So it was actually face-to-face. It was quite surreal rather than on the phone. And also, it was telling them individually. So I sat down at my house and my dad's like, what? And I said, I've retired from football. And he was like, oh, why? What happened? It's like another injury, blah, 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 blah. It just feels right. I've got no regrets. I'm really positive about it. And he's like, that's great. And I said, but I've got something to tell you. And he's like, what? And I said, I'm going to run through the desert. I won't say what he said because it was a father and son moment that was, you know, very sort of uh, um, filled with colourful words. But he thought it was cool. He was just like, that's awesome. That's cool. Can I come? And, uh, yeah, so that was fine. And then my mum flew in a couple of days later and we, I said to Dad, I said, well, I'll give mum a day or so and then we'll sit down mm. anyway. It lasted about six hours and she's like, how's things, how's training? And I said, right, okay, sit down, mum. So mum, I've retired from football. Oh, are you okay? And this and that. Because I knew I was in a pretty dark time. And I said, yeah, but I've got something else to tell you. I'm running in this race for the Sahara Desert. 
And I kid you not, my mum just said, you can't do that, you're going to die. <laughs> so for the next three hours, I'm YouTubing clips of the Marathon de Sables to show her, which I thought was going to calm her down, but she's freaking out even more. It's just how many people die every year. I'm like, mum, you can't die. There's a helicopter, you've got a flare, and there's all these organisations, like all these volunteers, and they've got four-wheelers like motorbikes and they've got um, jeeps and stuff that there's checkpoints every so many kilometers and it's fine and it took me about four or five hours to calm my mum down to realize I'm not going to die it's okay mum it's all right exactly because she literally thought there's probably like half the field that die every year because once again she didn't know about ultra marathons just like I didn't okay let's go to the race then just explain briefly what it exactly is in terms of the stages the five days and then talk me through the race because I know you did go into that race with a, an IT band injury yeah exactly you have done your research I love it have you seen the documentary on I YouTube I haven't seen the documentary oh no. mate not yet. you need to watch that it's called it's, it's not a race it's a war don't watch it when you're eating I'll, okay I'll give you that much it's brutal it's my toes the format's changed slightly since I did it in 2012 but basically it's the equivalent of six marathons in seven days and the first three days are 30 plus kilometers and because the route changes every year. It's not the same route. So literally you're, you fly in on a ch- from the UK contingent. They fly in on chartered flight and you get to, we got to Wazazat, which is a big town on the edge of the Sahara Desert. And then we got shuttled uh, about six hours from a, in a coach to the middle of the desert and then in the back of these cattle trucks for like an hour, like into the middle of the desert. And there's this campsite set up. So on the uh, coach ride, you get given the route map. So you don't know how long the distances are. But the first three days when I did it were pretty much 30-something kilometers. Okay, so 20-odd miles. Mm. And then the fourth day, which is also the fourth and fifth day, is double marathon. Give or take a kilometer or two. Sometime, I think the longest time it's been stage has been 92 kilometers, double marathon being 84. And I think they had 78 you know, but you've got sand dunes, it's everything, it's brutal. So you actually have two days to complete it. So if you start in the morning and you smash it out in 12 hours, you start at nine, you finish at nine at night, you go to bed at 10, 11 o'clock, you got the whole next day to recover. And then the day after that, which is day six, is a marathon. So literally 26 miles, 42 Ks. And then the final day, they say, oh, we're only going to do 10 miles, 16 kilometers. But for my race, 10 kilometers of that was over the biggest sand dunes in the Sahara Desert. They're, they're like sand mountains. So it was brutal. I've heard people call that last day a fun run. Well, now it is because your, your family can come and you can run the last 10 kilometers together because the race is finished. As I said, it's, it's, um, the format's changed. But I think everyone called it a fun run because when... Even if you've got 10 kilometers of sand dunes, which is just like ridiculous, um, after a marathon and after a double marathon that you've done in the last three days, just like, you, you just think, okay, I'm only going to be out here for like four hours. That's cool. <laughs> it's so weird that that becomes normal. Yeah. Like I've talked to people about this before, the normalization of the mental amount of mileage and just talk to people about it and you're like, oh yeah. Like this morning when I came in and spoke to you this morning, you're just like, oh yeah, just casual 26. Nine years ago, like you said, even a half marathon, you would have been like, that's completely mental. I, I wouldn't have believed myself. Mm. I would have called you out if you said that. I'm like, nah, you didn't run that. That'd be ah. stupid. So 
So that's the format of the race, and you have to carry everything in your backpack except for a tent and water. So they pitch the tent. That's a loose term. It's literally a carpet on the floor and then sort of this two-sided... It's like a tarp, isn't it? Tarp, TP type thing. It's fabric. So if it rains, you know, which actually rained and hailed one day when we were in the Sahara Desert. Random. I know. (laughs) And uh, But water is rationed. So you get a certain amount of water every morning, which is for your breakfast because you eat dehydrated meals. So you need water to hydrate them and then to start the event. And then some checkpoints, you'll get one bottle. Some you'll get two, a litre and a half or three litres until the next checkpoint. And it's rationed. And then when you finish, you get three or four and a half litres or whatever it is. And that's for you re- you recovering from that day and for dinner that night and and for the rest of that night till the next morning. You can ask for more water. See, this is one of the things that I, that I think is so crazy, but I love it, is you can ask for more water. It's totally fine. But you get a time penalty. So you get penalised for, for having more than your rationed water when you're running an ultramarathon in the Sahara Desert. It's hilarious. So there's that. Um, <laughs> That's so savage. I know. But then also the, the, the thing that I always like to be really specific with is the food. Okay, mm. You've got to carry all your food for the entire week. So whatever you're going to eat on day six for that marathon and breakfast and dinner you carry in your backpack whatever you're going to eat for breakfast and that 10 miles or whatever it is that on the final day you carry on day one so i tell people this think about monday morning till sunday lunchtime all the food that you consume in that period you've got to put that into a backpack and carry it every day while you're running the equivalent of six marathons in seven days. Yeah, I mean, it's completely mental. Yeah. It's completely inconceivable for a lot of people, I think. It is, it is. Because you say to people, Monday Monday breakfast to Sunday lunchtime, put that in a backpack. And they're like, I couldn't put it in a backpack. They I, couldn't even name it. I, yeah, I know. I'd need a, like a coffin-sized bag to fill it in there. So, um, so there's strategy around that as well. And then basically you get up every morning and you go to the start line, which is like a this blow up arch and they play ACDC's Highway to Hell <laughs> over these over these tinny speakers and 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 2, 1 and you're off and then you finish and you make your own you have to make your own dinner with dehydrated food and you have light fires with like these little like little jiffy lighter things and or if you're from the from France you go and like find sticks and branches and stuff and make an actual fire <laughs> I was like I'm doing that next time instead of carrying all this stuff and um, you make your food then you hang out and you just do it every day every day every day so talk me through your race then so my race was as I said I'm running away from life during this period of signing up to the Marathon de Sabs and actually doing it which was six months I knew people were going to ask me what are you going to do now that you're retired from football because before I'd say I'm a footballer I'm a footballer I'm a footballer cool that's what you do but now what and I didn't know and I didn't want to have to deal with people to say what are you doing you know and because I had this massive identity crisis which I didn't know it at the time I I know it now and it was like I don't don't know I don't know I had this chip on my shoulder that I'm not an athlete anymore I didn't fulfill my potential I thought 
I want to go and do this crazy big race. What if I can make a career out of it? Mm. And I'm like, yeah. So I started to research and I found people like Ben Fogel at the time was doing loads of adventures, you know, when he was going through his adventuring stage and he, I think he wrote his book called Accidental Adventurer. Great mm. book, really cool, enjoyed it. Steve Backshaw was another one who was doing, he did MDS and he had a YouTube um, documentary as well about the MDS. And these guys were really on their adventuring sort of trail at the time. And I thought, this is cool. These guys, I, I didn't know who they were. I just saw them on the superficial level. I was like, yeah, why can't I travel around the world and do these big adventures? And they're writing books, they're speaking on stage, they're on television. Why can't I do that? I'm going to do that. I'm going to be an endurance adventurer. So I, I put my flag in the ground and said, I'm going to do this. Going into the race, I started to talk to a few brands and say, look, I'm doing this race. This is my first ever running race. I'm going to make a short little film about it, self, self-film it. So I got some action cameras and I got some free kits. And I, and I thought I'd made it. Mm. You know, like someone gave me a 500 quid action camera, like a GoPro equivalent. And I thought, oh, this endurance adventuring stuff, this is easy. I'm going to get back. I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to write magazine articles. I'm going to be speaking in front of 10,000 people. This is easy. I'm done. This is cool. So I'm telling everyone this is what I'm doing during my training. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be an endurance adventurer now. In reality, I knew that if I said that, people wouldn't question me for the next six months. Whether or not it's actually going to happen like as this big endurance adventurer, career that I had made up and just I guess it's similar to a four-year-old saying I want to be a professional footballer it was escapism I suppose 100% 100% because I was loss of identity I had this chip on my shoulder still as an athlete and the reason why I give you that backstory is how can I actually make waves because I know there's thousands of people who do this every year how can I stand out okay there's this thing called the elite top 50 of the marathon de subs where like finishing on the podium at say the Olympics, finishing in the elite top 50 is sort of the same. Mm. The other thing is when you do the first three days, if you're in the top 50 men and top five women, you start the double marathon day on day four, three hours later than everyone else, okay? So instead of nine o'clock in the morning, you start at midday. So my goal was to finish in the top 50, I'm an ex-footballer, I'm fast, I'm just putting a little bit of endurance, I'm good. I knew the pace that I could sustain. But as I said before, with my physio Mo, we built up my mileage slightly too quick because we only had five months. And I inflamed my ITB. It must have been like three or four weeks before. I saw my sports physician and he's like, we can give you another injection. Don't run for a couple of weeks. Do a small amount of running. We'll give you another injection before you go out. It might hold up two, three, four days. Probably won't hold up the whole time, but you might get through a large part of it without too many troubles. I knew what cortisone injections did. I'd had quite literally probably 20 in the past three years, which is not healthy for you at all. Mm. Did that four weeks before injection, week before another injection in my knee. You know, I felt great. First day I ran my own race. I felt really comfortable. And I thought, oh yeah, like not too, I started towards the front. I had no qualms about like, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to, and I thought if I can scrape into the top 50, that would be cool. I finished the first day, felt really cool. And I was like 21st. And I was just like, that was cool. The only thing was the last final five kilometers, my knee started to flared up and I thought, 
this is not going to be good. Like, I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty happy that I finished 21st or 22nd, whatever it was. But I knew my performance was going to decline rapidly because when you inflame your ITB, the only way to calm it down is to stop running. And I had 30-odd kilometers the next day. And there you have it, the first of a four-part mini-series as we go in-depth with ultra-endurance athlete Luke Taberski. Trust me, there is so much more to come in this conversation and in this mini-series, so do make sure you are subscribed to get it first. Please do rate and review as well. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. It really helps us out in those charts, and I hope you will join us next week once again on Why in the World.